Do you know what we wouldn't have found if we would have stayed on the trail? The waterfall, the cliff. What is that? People know but don't talk about. Except in whispers, like a ghost story. We don't bother them. And they don't bother us. But anyone who goes up there. Descendants of these people are still living up there on the mountain. They said they would be the foundation on which a new nation would be built. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I am Mike. Joining me, as always, it's Mr. Venom. How are you doing, Venom? Greetings and salutations, survivalists. Yes, I'm doing really good. How are you doing, Mike? Doing well. Um, it's, we're cruising right along, almost out of February into March, so uh, winter will soon be spring, although it feels like spring here already. Also joining us, it's Don and Ellie. How are you doing, Don? Hey, what's going on, everyone? Yeah, great to be here as always, and uh, finally looking forward to covering a horror film for once. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a whole week, Don. Oh, wait, that's right. We had that skirmish about horror or not. But uh, this week, there shouldn't be any uh, debate about whether it's a horror movie or not. Um, we are covering Wrong Turn 2021. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't even know if this was being billed as a remake or if it's just like, hey, we're just yeah, happy to call a movie as Wrong Turn. I, I don't know. I think it's more of a reboot. Reboot, okay. I think um, that's... I, I, I've heard that term thrown around more than I have remake, actually. Okay, I mean, that would make more sense, because as we... Does it? Because well, reboot I don't know. means that they're rebooting the franchise. Does that mean that we're getting more of these style wrong turn movies after this? Well, maybe it'll depend on how this one performs. I don't know. Definitely doesn't feel like a remake. I mean, 
Hey, it's a remake of the title, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. This is really just a remake in title. and But we'll get into it's that. As much, yeah, it's as much a remake as The Invisible Man is. Correct. They changed everything. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, Wrong Turn 2021, synopsis, I'm not going to read because as I'm kind of scanning with my eyes, I feel it gives away a little too much for people that don't nope. want to know. Um, I'll just say, group of friends end up going hiking and they run into trouble hiking. I mean, that's going to be obvious. So, other than that, I mean, is there anything you want to add to a synopsis? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's squared away, so we'll turn to general thoughts. And uh, Venom, what did you think of Wrong Turn 2021? Well, this was an odd one because I was going in with very low expectations. Um, I am a fan of the original Wrong Turn, more a fan of the killers and the kills themselves and the gore and everything else i hated you know all the normal people in it because you know i i'm never a big fan of characters and slashers because i always feel like they're just fodder like they're made to be unlikable so that when they die we're cheering more for the killer than the actual you know uh protagonist so yeah um but i'm gonna say this movie subverted pretty much all of my expectations i mean we get We get a cast of six friends going out into the woods where at least five of them are very likable. You know, they come off as genuine people. They're not caricatures. There is one, unfortunately, Adam specifically, uh, who is, you know, a little bit of an over-the-top caricature, you know, the the douchebag of the group, if you will. But ultimately, I actually cared about all of our uh, protagonists. I thought that this movie was very well made. This story is so much better than it deserves to be. Like, like I, I can get, I can see the argument about if this is a reboot or a, a you know, a remake or, or just another wrong turn movie because it's just so different. You know, I, I, I don't want to give away too much during general thoughts, but I mean, you know, you get as Mike said, you get the same setup. You, you get six good-looking people going out into the woods. They're told to stay on the Appalachian Trail. Of course, they go off the trail to go see something, you know, uh, you know, some rumored Civil War um, shelter, blah blah blah. And then, of course, hilarity ensues from there. So that part of it is pretty basic. But when we actually see who the antagonists are. It just worked so much more for me. Don't get me wrong. I love a good cannibal redneck, you know, movie every now and then. But the fact that this one is just almost the complete opposite of that just made me so happy. We get some great performances. It's good to see Matthew Modine again. We haven't seen him in a little bit, even though he does actively work. It's just he's not in a lot of stuff that I watch. So it was nice to see him again. Um, You know, we got some great uh Characters, both uh, antagonists and protagonists, I really love the way that they set up um, our antagonists for this film. I love how much time we spend with the antagonists. Um, I'm sure many people have already heard how long this movie is. This movie, unfortunately, is almost two hours. It's an hour and 50 minutes, which was giving me some pause going into the film because I'm not a big fan of slashers that are over 90 minutes. I, I just feel like a slasher should be fairly cut and dry, no no pun intended, but just in, out, done. And yeah, when I saw the runtime, it definitely, you know, I kind of had to prepare myself for a two-hour slasher. But then what we ended up getting was just 
so good, like just so compelling. Like the first time I put the movie on, I I wasn't sure that we were going to be reviewing it. So I was just watching it for enjoyment. And I was legitimately riveted to the point where I actually stopped playing online poker. And that's huge for me because I'm constantly playing online poker. But yeah, I actually turned the, the the laptop off and just paid attention to the movie, and I'm very happy I did. This turned out to be so much better than expected. Some very brutal kills, not a whole lot of kills, and that's another thing I like about this movie. We were just talking last week about movie horror movies that have low body counts. Um, this is another one that has a low body count because it actually makes you care about certain characters. Um, you know, in the third act, the body count does kind of jump up because obviously more of the antagonists are going to be taken out during the finale. But I, I just thoroughly enjoyed this movie. There's very little negative. There was a couple of performances, maybe like uh, Darius. Um, the actor's name is Aiden Bradley. Eh, didn't do the greatest job. There was a couple of his line deliveries that were a little cringeworthy. But ultimately, the majority of this cast was great. Uh, they all played their parts really well. I thought this was directed really well. As far as the filmmaking goes, like, you know, the cinematography, the score, nothing, none, nothing about the film is stellar, like over the top great. Um, and this is funny, too, because this is almost the opposite of what I say a lot about about a lot of horror movies where I'll praise their filmmaking, their editing, their writing, things like that. But then I'll talk about how much I hate the story. And this movie's opposite. This movie is very, you know, color by numbers, cinematography, score, everything else. But the story is so great and so compelling and surprising to the point where, you know, you almost start to feel like the antagonists are actually the protagonists. And, you know, we'll get into that during the walkthrough. But, yeah, um, I, I'm going to go ahead and shut up now because, yeah, this is another example of a movie that I can talk up a lot. But, yeah, um, Basically, uh, general thoughts, absolutely love the film. It is a top three film for me for 2021, and I can't wait to watch it again. All right. Don, can you wait to watch it again? Um, for me, I have to completely disagree with everything Venom said. Um, I wanted to like this a lot more than I did. Uh, there's a few points that I actually do like. I do like the first half of the film where they're stranded out in the wilderness but everything after that, I was just thinking to myself, God, this is stupid. The entire concept of what's going on in this is stupid. I don't like the decisions any of the the screenwriting took. I don't like any of the characters at all either. Um, I have no idea where he's coming from with these people being likable. This is completely cliched, run-of-the-mill, millennial 101 writing. Everybody trying to be super woke, everybody trying to be super PC, and it just comes off as try-hard. They're loud, they're annoying, everybody just makes the worst decisions possible. None of them are really likable or appealing or even around long enough to really matter. Uh, None of the kills are... The kills in this aren't even that great. They're just bland, boring, and... They're off. All the kills are off screen except for two. They're not even that bloody. You get more aftermath than anything. Uh, I don't like any of the the decision to go with the foundation or whatever the hell this thing is called. It's stupid. It's unappealing. I I really wanted to like this more, and I uh, the only thing I 
Okay, so the only thing I do agree with is that I do think that it is stylistically well-made, but other than that, I don't agree with anything Venom said. Awesome. All right. Well, (laughs) then I guess it goes to me now. I am going to come in right in the middle of you guys. Um, I definitely liked it more than Dawn did, but I don't think I liked it as much as Venom. I... uh, I think the movie's strength is it definitely didn't try to be like a repeat of the original wrong turn. It's definitely not just like a straight remake because the story is very different. Um, This is a movie that I liked a lot of things about it, but I'm struggling to say I loved anything about it. it. It's one of those movies where like when the credits were rolling and, uh, I hold that thought too, because uh-huh. hopefully everyone watches <laughs> through some of the credits at least. When the credits were rolling, I was like, okay, that was like a fine movie. Like it, and it, it's funny because Venom, you said it's a top three for you so far, yep. and like honestly, I can't with the with the amount of movies I've seen so far this year, I almost couldn't argue that point because I'm sure both of you have seen much more than me for 2021. Um, as far as the movies I've seen, it might actually be a top three, only because I haven't seen a ton. Um, but even with that said, I wouldn't expect it to like end up on a list for me just because. Oh no! Mm-hmm. But um, you know, getting that out of the way because that, I mean that kind of talk almost doesn't matter in the big picture, I guess. But I don't know. It's like I like. I'll say the the film. Um, it looked great. They obviously knew what they these people knew what they were doing in making a movie. Um, I like the setting of it. Conceptually, I was on board with where it went. I mean, there are some questions about okay, how how is this really existing? It doesn't seem like it's. They try to set it. They, the way they try to set the story about exactly what's going on. It's like okay. I get it conceptually, but it doesn't seem like as remote out there as I was expecting. But I, I like kind of where they went instead of it being like what it was in the original. Um, like I said, the kill, there were some decent kills in this. Characters, fine, I guess. Didn't love them, didn't hate them. Um, I don't know. It's just. So it's just one of those movies where I came away like, okay, it, it was, it was fine, and I don't know. It's hard to really get. It. I know it sounds like, well, what, what else? But it's kind of hard to get into it without spoilers. Um, I don't know. I, I thought, I definitely think it's worth a watch. I definitely think people, regardless of your opinions of what you think you know as to be wrong turn. You don't have to worry about that going into this movie. It's definitely its own thing. And I think that is a major strength of this one is it doesn't feel like a rehash of anything. Obviously, you know, it's there's going to be elements of it that, yes, you've seen elsewhere. But I think as a movie, it does stand on its own. Um, and Matthew Modine, how the hell did he get wrapped up in this? Not, not, <laughs> that, not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with it, but like I wouldn't have expected – Matthew Modine to be starring in Wrong Turn 2021, but he's there, and I mean he's always good. He's a great actor, so mm-hmm. it was nice to see him there. Um, 
And there's just, you know, other character things that we can get into once we get into spoilers. But overall, I would say I liked it, didn't love it. Still worth a watch. Uh, would I recommend it? Sure. I I would say go ahead and check it out, and uh, maybe you'll like it as much as Venom. Maybe not, but uh, um, that's about Bob's, what I would rate it. Yeah. This has to be a first, huh? Three completely different opinions on the same movie. That's uh, that's that's pretty rare for us. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think well, I think wait, a big part Renzo, of the, uh-huh. oh wait, you, I'm I'm saying we all came in kind of differently when we did the rental. I know you weren't there for that one, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think the rental was one where I absolutely hated it. Um, Scott absolutely loved it, and then I think you and Heather were kind of like in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that was like one where we were all like all over the board. Cool. Well, I wasn't there, so it didn't happen. What I'm saying is that I know you weren't there, but yeah, I mean, amongst the four of us, I think we all were kind of different. Yeah, I think I think the reason that I just genuinely enjoyed this film was because it wasn't like the original. And I'm like I said, I'm not saying that I disliked the original wrong turn. I legitimately liked it. But you go into a movie that's a remake or, you know, an expected remake. It's got the same title. You know, you're kind of expecting the same kind of horror tropes, uh, the same kind of uh, style of antagonist, things like that. And the mere fact that it just kept surprising me. I was just I, I was so happy that that it went where it went. I was as far as the decision making. I don't think there was any problems with the decision making. They all did what they could do. Ultimately, Ooh. and obviously, we'll we'll talk about it during the walkthrough. But I mean, I watched the movie three times, and I don't think I have any major problems with any decisions that were made. Jen makes the decision that she makes to save her and Darius's life. You know, it's not the obvious choice, but it's a valid one. Because did they not end up surviving? Well, you know, we'll find out in the walkthrough. But I mean, the point is, I hearing Don talk about the terrible decision making. I yeah, we're. We're definitely going to have to talk about this uh, during the walkthrough because I I saw very little, honestly. I mean, and obviously, you know, we've we've already had this discussion with suspension of disbelief where you kind of have to just accept that characters might do the wrong thing, especially in a movie called Wrong Turn. But ultimately, I I had no major I had no problem suspending disbelief with this film. Let's leave it at that. All six of the uh, protagonist characters all came off very believable to me. I wasn't rolling my eyes at any of them. I wasn't cringing at their line delivery, other than maybe one or two by Darius, like I said, who's probably the weak link as far as acting in the film goes. But, man, I am, I am especially coming off of St. Maud, I am, I am legitimately shocked to hear Don, you know, uh, not enjoy this as much as he did, or as little as he did. So, yeah, crazy. Well, for uh, me, I mean, for me, the one thing is, is that I'm a huge fan of the Wrong Turn series. I just want stupid people getting killed off by inbred cannibals, and oh, yes, that's not yes, what we yes. got here. That's yes. not what we got here. Yeah. So that was. That's why I love it. I got nothing with inbred cannibals. I really don't. I enjoy a good movie, you know, involving, you know, we saw a couple of them recently with butchers and bloody hell stuff like that, and I enjoyed all of those, but. Like I said, just going into this film with the certain expectations that I had, and usually I talk about how much I hate doing expectations because nine times out of ten, expectations are going to ruin a film for you. And this one, I went in with certain expectations, and they all got subverted to the point where 
you know, I had a smile on my face this whole movie. I was actually cheering on certain characters. They they were making their decision making was so on point at some elements that I was literally cheering. I absolutely love Jennifer's dad, um, Scott, who obviously is played by Matthew Modine. I love that character. I love every fucking decision he makes in this movie, and he's quick about it too. He doesn't sit around looking like a deer caught in the headlights. He so, something happens and he just acts, and I love that. And it's not like they set him up to be like a former marine or anything. You know, he's just a concerned dad who, I guess, what works in construction or something. So, I don't know. I, you know, obviously we'll get into it during the walkthrough, but I'm absolutely loving the majority of the the people in this film and the decisions that they made because in, you know, in the heat of the moment, you have to act fast, and not everyone is going to make the perfect decision. Sometimes you're going to make the wrong decisions. That's life. But as far as like like there's no weapon droppers in this movie, you know we you guys know how much I can't stand weapon droppers. There's not one fucking weapon dropper in this movie. Everybody keeps their weapon in their goddamn hand until they see brain matter, and I love that, you know. So, like I said, it subverted certain horror tropes while still supporting others that we've seen in the past. Like I said, the good-looking kids going out in the woods, getting picked off, blah blah blah. But I just I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm not really here to try to change anyone's mind you know, you're going to have your own, you're going to have the opinion that you have on the film and it's not likely going to change with subsequent rewatches, but man, did I love this film. So for whatever it's worth, this was made for me. Um, whereas Mike, we were talking this weekend on the episode of theme warriors where I made the comment that uh, the color of money was not made for me, even though it's a great film and I can recognize that it's a great film. I won't ever watch it again because it's not for me for whatever it's worth. This movie apparently was for me. It was a thinker. It made, it made you think it wasn't just, you know, mongoloid cannibals going around killing, you know, purdy city folk in the woods. You know, there was actual, there was some commentary behind it. There was some, Yes, some stretching of the truth, obviously, and maybe a little bit of rewriting history. But again, in my opinion, it all worked for me. I, like I said, and I, I'm, a, I'm a very easy person to make uh, my eyes roll when I see something incredibly stupid in a film. I did not roll my eyes once in this film. I just, I was, I was on board for the journey every second of it. And I absolutely love the closing credit sequence, which obviously we'll get into, which really makes the entire movie for me. But, you know, we'll get into that. All right. Well, I guess with that said, we can kick it into spoiler territory. All right. So... All right, this is going to be a long one, folks. As I already mentioned, you know, the movie is almost two hours long. I tried to minimize the walkthrough as much as I could by skipping some scenes that maybe didn't have any major plot points and, you know, any major events happening. So we'll try to get through this as quickly as possible so Don can go and watch Wrong Turn 3 one more time. Okay. Oh, God, that's actually the lowest one. Give me four or six. (laughs) I have not seen three, believe it or not. I've just heard a lot of people talk smack about it. And I actually it's, own the wrong turn set. I, I, I just have never seen past two. Oh, I it's, know, fun, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's, it, it's a fun one, but I actually think it's the lowest out of the original series. So Yeah, I've, I've heard many people say that before, yeah. yeah. All right, so wrong turn 2021. 
Our movie opens up with um, an older gentleman driving around. It looks like he's searching for someone. He finally pulls into a town in Virginia, and he goes to the police station where he speaks to the police, uh, to the sheriff, and they're basically talking about his daughter, who has been missing for over six weeks on the Appalachian Trail. As it turns out, his daughter and five of their friends six weeks earlier had decided to go you know, uh, hiking on the Appalachian Trail. They never came back. So here's dad looking for them. Um, during his investigation, uh, you know, he talks to the police, as I already mentioned. Uh, the police are obviously no help at all. You know, the, the, the sheriff is talking about, well, people go missing up there all the time and they're never seen again. It's a lot of woods. It's a big area, you know, for us to cover, blah, 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 blah. So dad eventually fills out a missing persons report and leave and leaves. Um, he then goes to his hotel to check in. As it turns out, it's the hotel that his daughter and their friends stayed at. And he's briefly talking to the hotel manager and he's talking, you know, he, sh he shows the picture of his daughter from his phone to the hotel manager. She says that, yeah, I do remember them and I told them to stay on the main trail, but no one's seen them since the day they left for their hike. So, you know, obviously something bad has happened. At this point, dad decides to go to a local bar um, in the in the town. I don't know if they ever actually gave us a name of the town. There was just a welcome to Virginia sign at the beginning of the movie. So I know we're in Virginia. So while at this bar, uh, we meet our harbinger. Uh, I'm not sure if our harbinger actually had a name. I'm sure he did. But, uh, you know, he's the old guy basically saying, you know, if your daughter's up in them hills, she ain't never coming back. You know, do yourself a favor and just leave. Go back home. Blah, blah, blah. Which, of course, kind of upsets the dad. He gets into a little bit of a, not a shouting match, but a little bit of a back and forth with the local. And, you know, finally the dad just says, do you have kids? Because uh, what would you do? And the conversation just kind of ends there. And then we have a time jump. We go back six weeks. We get the text on the screen six weeks earlier. And what we see is Jen and Darius. They are a couple. They are driving out to Virginia to the Appalachian Trail that they've heard so much about that they want to experience, you know, while they're still young and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they're there with their friends, Adam and Mila, who are Mila who are also a couple, and then they also have um, uh, a gay couple with them. Um, what was their name? Luis and... Luis and Gary. Luis and Gary are a gay couple. I think they're vaguely... Uh, one of them might be Indian, one of them might be kind of Asian, kind of Filipino, you know, darker skin than your average Caucasian. Um, and Darius, Darius is a... One's, Lati one's Latino and one's Indian. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so like I said, th that's our six friends. They're driving, you know, we get a little bit of character development with them, you know, as they're driving, uh, to, to their location, they end up, uh, going to the same bar that dad went to six weeks later. Um, like I said, this is six weeks earlier now, this is before anyone went missing. So they're all at the local bar. And of course, as with most of these types of movies, you know, we get, uh, our group of protagonists get into a little bit of a, altercation with locals you know uh we once again see the harbinger the harbinger that we saw talking to the dad earlier he's talking to the kids you know kind of giving them the basic city slicker shit you guys probably never had a real job in your life blah 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 uh jen defends them and you know goes over the list of jobs that a lot of them have had and what they do and one of them even makes a comment that um 
that his eyes are kind of yellowish, that they're turning yellow, which could be a sign of either jaundice or liver disease. And, you know, he just kind of walks away and doesn't really say anything, you know, kind of walks away with his tail between his legs. Um, the next morning, Jen decides to go out for a jog and she meets two local girls. Uh, one is, an, uh, a, you know, a girl in, probably in like her 20s named Edith and then a little girl, maybe like nine, 10 years old named Ruthie. Um, they are both locals. Edith is making jewelry, you know, right there, selling it on the street. And, you know, um, Jen ends up buying one for a rather exuberant price of $10. But, you know, locals are always going to take advantage of the city folk. So um, let's see. So uh, the next morning or that morning, I should say, that's the morning that Jen's running. Uh, they decide they finally they pack up their stuff. They're hunting or excuse me, they're hiking gear. Um, their backpacks, sleeping bags, um, tents, all that stuff, and they hit the trail. And then we get like a little five to ten minute montage, maybe not quite ten minutes, like four or five minute little montage of them just kind of traveling up and down the Appalachian Trail, seeing, um, you know, seeing some of the local sites like, you know, um, cliffs and waterfalls and just little things like that. And then finally, at one point on the trip, Darius... Um, decides he wants to go off the trail and check out a Civil War fort that's rumored to be in the area. Now, of course, Jen kind of fights him on him, fights him on it and says, no, the hotel manager told us not to go off the trail, that the woods are dangerous. He, Darius, of course, convinces them that it's just a quick detour. It won't take long. You know, we'll take a look, take some pictures and then get right back on the trail. And, you know, as expected, uh, they're walking for what seems like a few hours. I think one of them makes the comment that it feels like it's been a couple hours that they've been walking off the trail. They are very obviously lost. Darius has no idea where he is. And mind you, you know, they're doing all of this without GPS, without maps, without anything. They're literally just walking around. So that might have been a little bit of a poor decision on their part. Uh, and obviously going off the trail and taking the titular wrong turn. Haha. <laughs> Um, so like I said, they go off the trail, they're lost, and then suddenly out of nowhere, a large log starts rolling down the hill. Like they're, they're basically walking perpendicular with a very large hill on their left, and suddenly they hear a noise, and they all look up and they see this large log, like a tree, like basically an entire tree just rolling down the hill towards our group. They, you know, they do what they can to get out of the way. They, you know, they dive. They, a couple of them end up hitting other trees while they're running away. And unfortunately, Gary, one of the uh, one of the gay couple, is killed in this scene. He is not able or <laughs> he probably freezes in fear because, you know, he does that silly thing where he sees the tree rolling towards him and doesn't really act right away. He just kind of looks at it and screams but unfortunately gary is taken out and this is a again this is one of the kills that don was talking about where we don't actually see the moment of impact but when you see the aftermath holy shit i mean his head is just crushed in between those two trees part of his lower jaw is like disconnected one of his eyeballs is coming out of his head i mean you know it it looks as good or better than glenn getting smashed in the walking dead for those who actually saw that season of the walking dead so obviously our friends are all you know freaking out they're discombobulated um gary is dead who, who is of course in a, in a in a relationship with louise so louise you know kind of has a little bit of a breakdown starts blaming darius 
you know, for killing him, you know, for, you know, coming up with the idea of going off the path, blah, blah, blah. They basically just end up uh, deciding they can't stay there because, you know, they they don't really know where they are. So they decide to try to take a, a shortcut across the mountain to try to get back to the Appalachian Trail. Of course, they are unsuccessful. It starts to rain and suddenly it's raining heavily. They're still hiking and they basically decide to make camp for the night. Um, so that night while they're uh, sleeping, uh, we get a little kind of a little set piece where Jen wakes up in the middle of the night due to thunder and lightning. And she thinks that she sees the silhouette of someone standing outside of her tent during one of the lightning strikes. But then she sits up and she waits for the next lightning strike. And when it occurs, she doesn't see anybody else out there. So she just kind of blows it off. She doesn't go outside to check. Good girl. And, um, you know, they, they all just wake up the next morning. So next morning comes and they all realize two things. One, Mila is missing. Adam's girlfriend, Mila, um, is just gone. No one knows where she is. And, uh, you know, they decide to all get together to go look for her. And then the other thing that they realize is that someone took all their cell phones. All of them had their own cell phone with them. And then the next morning, they all wake up and the phones are gone, completely gone. Some of them were actually ha kept in the tent. Like Jen's phone specifically was in her bag, which was in the tent. So somehow somebody was able to get these phones away from them and not wake them up. So go figure. More, more suspension of disbelief there. But, you know, ultimately that's minor. Um, so they decide to get to search for Mila. Um, during their search for Mila, they end up finding a plaque that's just kind of mounted up on the side of the mountain. And what the plaque is, is a declaration pledge from a group called the Foundation. And what the Foundation is, we don't actually find out what the Foundation is here, but I'm going to tell you what it is anyway. Um, basically, we find out later in the film that the Foundation is a collection of about 12 or so families who decided to kind of secede from the Union before the start of the Civil War. So um, these aren't necessarily Confederates who are unhappy with their slaves getting taken away from them. These are just people who they claim that they see the country is going to, you know, basically go down the shitter. Um, they, they see that there's a war that's about to start. Obviously, you know, the 1850s is just a couple of decades removed from the Civil War. They can obviously see, you know, kind of the animosity building. Uh, a few years before it starts, because it starts in 1860. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking 1880 for some reason. Okay, 1860. So a few years then. Cool. I'm not great with dates. <laughs> uh, let's see. So like I said, they find that plaque. They read on the plaque about how it's a collection of, uh, you know, families that decided to go and live up in the mountains away from society and what their plan was. The reason they call themselves the foundation is that their plan was, is that when the, when the country finally just fell into chaos during the civil war, they would kind of rise from the ashes and provide the foundation for a new nation. So there you go. Hey, I made a rhyme foundation for a new nation. Nice. Uh, let's see. So, um, so, okay, after this, uh, while after they see the plaque, but they're st while they're still looking for Mila, 
Adam and Jen end up running into Ruthie, the little girl from the opening scene, the local girl. And Adam obviously wants to ask her questions because it's the first person other than people from his group that he's seen. So he kind of chases her, but ends up tripping. And uh, when when he's on the ground fallen, Jen kind of gives Ruthie the, the the head nudge to say, you know, get out of here, go. Because um, Adam is obviously so pissed off right now. Lord knows what he would do to a child just to get information. So Ruthie runs off. And, um, you know, uh, basically what ends up happening is... Adam realizes that he is caught in some kind of trap. Now, it's not a bear trap, like one of those clamps that clamps on. It's more, um, it, it's more like a, what do you call it? It's a, um, it, it's a non-lethal trap. So it's meant to capture animals and keep them away from the foundation's food supply. But Adam accidentally steps in the trap and uh, he ends up getting dragged a- a- along the road by some unseen force. Like he's still he's still attached to the chain, and it's dragging him away to Lord knows where. Finally, he's dragged into a hole that leads underground. Um, Adam and Jen catch up to him. They see the hole in the ground. They try to get in there. Darius actually tries to climb into the hole, only to find out that there's a rattlesnake right there at the entrance. So. Jen kind of makes the decision that, look, we can't stay here. Lord knows what happened to Adam. Um, there's people trying to kill us. We need to just get out of here. You know, so Jen marks the location where Adam was last seen, where he went into the hole underground. I can only assume so that if they find help or the authorities that they can come back and potentially save them. Uh, like I said, they end up leaving. But then in their travels, they end up finding like a shed. Uh, I think it's an old lumber mill, one of them mentions. And inside the old lumber mill, you just see a plethora of backpacks. You see a table full of cell phones. On the floor is just rows and rows of shoes. So, you know, obviously we're getting that same kind of setup from the original wrong turn of, you know, these people finding the possessions of previous victims of this family and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. But while they're in the lumber mill kind of assessing everything that's in there, they hear two men coming towards them, not towards them, but walking by the lumber mill that they're in. When they end up looking out the window to see who they are, these two men are basically walking around with animal skulls over their head and they're wearing ghillie suits, you know, for camouflage. Um, and they are carrying Adam on um, almost like a like a, one of those rotisserie grill type things where they hang him on a stick and one guy's carrying the stick on either end, blah, 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 like a like a bindle, I think is what it's called. Um, so anyway, they see this. Darius instantly recognizes that it's Adam that they're dragging away, even though his head is covered in a hood. Uh, he obviously recognizes the clothes that he's wearing. And Darius runs out along with the rest of the group and they confront the two men. They actually like confront them and say, you know, stop, put our friend down, blah, blah, blah. And basically what ends up happening is the two the two men in the, uh, you know, the two creepy guys aren't speaking English. They're speaking in some language that our group and myself don't understand at all. It sounds vaguely Scandinavian or Norwegian, something like that. Um, something very Viking sounding, if you will. So 
Um, and then what, what ends up happening is Adam ends up getting freed from his restraints. Cause like I said, he was tied up on that stick that they were carrying and he ends up grabbing a log, uh, a good size log, not like a gigantic one, but he grabs one and he basically just bludgeons to death one of the men in the suits. Uh, and, and I mean, bludgeoned like his head was just a pile of stuff when he was done. Uh, once again, yes, like Don said, we're not seeing the actual moments of impact necessarily, but we are seeing some damn good gore uh, afterwards in the aftermath shots. So, you know, at least they're giving me something, so I'll take it. Um, so, like I said, at this point, um, the group's not sure what's going on. Adam has just finished smashing the head of one of these guys. The other one is gone. They, they all notice that the other one just disappeared while Adam was killing this one guy. And Adam's basically saying, you know, they killed Mila. They killed Mila. So fuck it. I killed them. And then just as he's saying that they killed Mila, who walks up to them? But fucking Mila uh, just walks <laughs> up nonchalantly like nothing ever happened. Mila's um, like, I was just taking a piss in the woods. Yeah. Uh, basically, yeah. Mila explains that she got up in the morning to take a piss, didn't want to wake anybody up. But while she was out in the woods urinating, she noticed these two guys, the, the two guys with the skull heads in question. Um, and she said that she didn't want to come out of her hiding spot. She said that she could hear the group calling her, like calling out her name, but she didn't want to, you know, say, hey, I'm over here because she was concerned that those two guys were still around. So she just decided to find a hiding spot and just kind of lay low while, you know, all these events are taking place. So, okay. So at this point, like I said, we now have a little bit of a separation in the group. Some people are saying, fuck it. Let's just leave. We don't owe that guy anything. Obviously, Jen, who seems to normally take the moral high ground, is, you know, concerned that they're that they murdered someone without cause. There's a witness because the other one, like I said, the other guy got away. He ran away. So obviously there's the disconnect now between the group, between the people who want to come clean and the people who don't even want to bring it up ever again. But during their uh, travels, Darius ends up springing a pendulum trap in the woods. Basically, he hits a tripwire and then just like a weighted, uh, you know, a big weighted ball with spikes sticking out of it just kind of swings towards him like a pendulum. And um, luckily ends up missing all his vital organs. He, t he ends up taking one of the spikes in the upper right chest. Um, so, you know, it didn't hit any major arteries. It didn't go quite deep enough to puncture his lungs. So, you know, he's able to continue his journey, but, you know, now we're aware that there are booby traps in these woods. Um, our group continues, uh, walking through the woods, trying to find help. And suddenly, uh, we see that Luis is like at the back of the group. Um, they're all together. It's not like they're all that separate, but Luis is in the back of the group. Suddenly we see someone, uh, basically dressed like a, like the bark of a tree, basically covered in tree bark so that he, he's camouflaged easier. Like an absolute ninja, he walks up to Luis, doesn't make a goddamn sound and is able to take him away. Jen instantly turns around and Luis is completely gone. No branches shaking, no noise that she can hear. Just Luis just flat out disappeared. At this point, more locals start to show up. It, it turns almost into a Rambo scene because some of them start like coming up out of the ground. And, you know, a couple of they all have ghillie suits and different animal skulls on. If you look at the credits, 
um, on IMDb, you get multiple people that are basically called, uh, their character is called by the skull that they're wearing. So there's deer skull, wolf skull, boar skull, elk skull. Not really all that important that you remember who's who. The, the, the important players will have names, so you know you don't have to worry about all the random hunters in the group, if you will. But like I said, uh, more locals end up coming out of the woodwork. They start chasing our group. Mila ends up falling into a spike pit, um, you know, a pit trap where she falls in and there and she's basically impaled multiple times, twice through the leg, once through the chest, maybe one more in the shoulder. But she's still alive. Um, I mean, she's obviously going to die very soon. I mean, if they pull her, if even if they were able to pull her off of those spikes, she's going to bleed out in minutes. So... Um, her boyfriend, Adam, sees that she fell in the pit, realizes that he's not really going to be able to do anything for her. You know, there's so many spikes down there and she's impaled multiple times. He, you know, he, he tries to play hero and tries to run off for help to try to find, you know, other members of the group that may have gotten separated. But right as Adam leaves, Another local shows up, another one of the foundation, and he's, uh, again, he's wearing an animal skull and a ghillie suit, and he's just kind of staring down, doing the head tilt thing that Michael Myers likes to do, looking at um, Mila as she's begging him for help, him or her, and the local basically, without making a sound, just cocks his arrow back and shoots an arrow right into Mila, killing her right away. So at this point now, we've lost Mila and um, Gary from our original six. Um, so basically, one by one now, everyone in the group is captured. All of our, you know, the uh, our protagonists are all captured. They have hoods put on top uh, over their head, and they are dragged to a, not dragged literally, but they are marched to a local community. Um when they go into the community, they can, they're wearing, the sacks on their head are basically like, you know, um, potato sacks, so they can still kind of see through them a little bit. And as they're being taken through this village, they're seeing all these people, men, women, children, all working, contributing, doing whatever they can for the community. It literally looks like a commune. It just looks like a hippie commune. Everybody's dirty and everybody's working. So, but obviously at this point, you know, we know that we're watching a movie called Wrong Turn, so obviously a lot of us have expectations of who this this group is going to be, cannibals, inbred, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, the next morning, Jen wakes up in a pit, not a spike pit, but just like a uh, like a prison cell that's just a big old pit. Um, Edith ends up opening the lid of said pit. And starts basically telling her, if you want to get out of here alive, you will shut the fuck up and do what we say. Jen, of course, is a little distraught. She's asking, you know, why are you doing this? We know each other. I bought that bracelet from you yesterday. Edith gets pissed off and just closes the lid of the uh, pit right back up. So, I don't know if it's later that day. I'm not sure how much time has passed at this point. But a little bit later, um, Edith opens the pit again that Jen is trapped in. And this time she actually lowers down a bucket of water with some fruit floating in it. So, you know, she's got something to eat and drink. Once Jen eats and drinks something and builds up her strength a little bit, Edith then takes her out of the pit, actually throws like a rope ladder down to her. And she comes out of the pit and all four of our survivors are then led underground 
to some kind of meeting room uh, where they walk in and it looks like there's a table of elders in front of them and it looks like a large part of the community is standing behind them. As it turns out, they are in a court. Uh, This is the foundation's court where they try, you know, um, trespassers, anybody that they deem guilty and not worthy of being in that community, they punish them. We'll get into the punishment here in a little bit. Um, And this is where we meet Venable. Uh, Venable is the name of the leader of this, uh, of the foundation, you know, a very stern, uh, slightly older gentleman, maybe middle age, but a big dude, almost like a Grizzly Adams type. He's got a full beard. Um, you know, he's showing some age in his face. So, you know, he's, he's probably like the, the, not necessarily the elder, but probably the leader, if you will, of the, of these people. Um, and also, I did a little bit of research on that name because I've never actually heard Venable used as a name. And what I found out, and I don't know if this is coincidence or if this is the filmmakers actually doing really good research, but the name Venable actually can be traced back to 1700s Virginia, believe it or not. Um, it's, a, it's an old family name. The oldest recorded use of the name is of a pair of brothers who ran a quarry in 1700s uh, Virginia. And um, they also had uh, businesses in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and basically all a, a bunch of different parts of the South. But then the actual meaning of the word, it's an old Norwegian word that actually stands for, in Latin, the word means hunting ground. In, uh, in Old English, Venable is a variant on Venari. And Venari is the uh, Latin word for the hunt or to hunt. It's like a verb, to hunt. Um, so now we know where Venable, are, the leader of our foundation, kind of gets his name. Later in the movie, he, he, he's called John, but that's a fake out. That's not his real name. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and he is played by Bill Sage, who actually does a really good job. I'm really happy with his performance as the uh, leader of the foundation. So. So, like I said, uh, they end up uh, going to the court. Um, Venable informs them that they are all um, on trial and that they are on trial for murder. And what they're talking about, of course, is earlier in the film when Adam killed that one local because he thought they were going to do something you know, bad to him, eat him, kill him, whatever. As it turns out, uh, through testimony that we hear during the court scene, Um, These people actually found that Adam had been caught in their trap, and they even explained that the trap isn't meant to kill any animals. It's just meant to capture them and keep them away from their food supply. They say uh, the two men who don't speak English, well, one of them, obviously, because one of them has been murdered. uh, The other one turns out to be the brother of the man who was murdered, and he gives his testimony where he's talking about how they found Adam in the trap They released him from the trap, but since he was out cold, they had to set up something that they could carry him down to the bottom of the mountain. They're claiming that they were actually taking him back down to the mountain so that he could, you know, find help for his injuries there. Um, But obviously, you know, know, our, our, our six protagonists, you know, they see these guys wearing ghillie suits. Uh, they all use blade weapons. None of them use um, guns. You know, they all they all have like knives and machetes and things like that. Bows and arrows are very prominent in this community as well. Um, so yeah, like I said, um, he's going over the events. So 
as you know, if you if you believe the testimony being said in the in the trial, and we have no reason not to, um, these people were not trying to hurt our friends. They were actually trying to help Adam get out of the woods because obviously the people in the foundation know that if you're not familiar with the woods, you're going to get lost in there and you're going to get lost forever. I mean, there's a reason that this group has been up in these mountains and has never been found by any authorities because they've got, like I said, they've got the booby traps and only they know the exact path to get to the community. So during the court trial, uh, during the trial, um, Venable asks um, Jen if Adam is guilty of murder and she says no. Um, I thought that there was going to be an additional explanation because, you know, how can you say that he didn't kill the guy when he absolutely did? But Jen, you know, tries to get Adam out of it. That's when the witness comes out, you know, the brother of the victim and tells his story. At that point, Adam is found guilty of murder and the other three members of our group are found guilty of being accessories to the crime. Adam is sentenced to death. And when we finally see his death, Adam is basically killed the exact same way that he killed uh, the local. Uh, we, literally with the exact same stick, too. Somebody went and retrieved uh, the, the pole or log, whatever it is that he used. And Venable then basically just crushes Adam's uh, skull. And this is one where we actually do get to see a couple of the actual connection shots. Granted, they're not close-ups. They're kind of from across a room. So it looks a little bit like uh, the head smash in Midsommar. If anybody saw Midsommar, you probably remember the scene where the, uh, you know, the ritual suicide, the old man didn't die and he gets his head squished by a hammer. Kind of reminiscent of that. So and then, you know, we do get a close up of the aftermath. And, yeah, his entire head is just caved in. There's not a face there anymore. It's just an empty skull. So um, at this point, uh, Venable and the rest of the foundation take our three surviving members and to take them to what they call the darkness. And what this is, is this is how they punish people who uh, they don't sentence to death. And what it basically is, is they take a red hot poker and they basically blind you. They stick the red hot poker in both of your eyes, completely blinding you. Then what they do is they they set you free in this labyrinth inside the mountain. It's like just a, a system of caves and paths and things like that that you'll never be able to get out of if you can't see. Um, and later on, when we actually go into the darkness, uh, we're going to see that there's a lot of people down there, which kind of answers the question if, if the Foundation are cannibals or not. And I'd say I'd say they're not, but we'll get to that. Um it almost it almost uh, reminded me a little bit of uh, uh, people on the stairs with the scene of yes. evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I like that. Good, good comparison. Okay, so at this point, um, Venable takes the hot poker and he pokes out Luis's eyes. Our, our little Hispanic friend Luis is now completely blinded and thrown into the darkness, fairly naked, not completely butt naked, but, you know, topless with just like a little skivvy uh, on the bottom, nothing major. So, and um, they're about to do the exact same thing to Darius. They have another red hot poker ready to go to poke out Darius's eyes. And then Jen stops them. And Jen tries to make a deal with these people. Um, 
she starts talking about the skills that Darius has, that he's, you know, he's really good with farming. He's good with climate change. He's good with different kinds of scientific um, things that maybe the, the community doesn't know anything about. Because like I said, they've lived up there since the 1850s. They have no technology, no medicine, you know, everything's all natural, blah, blah, blah. They do claim to be completely disease-free, though. They claim that no one in the town dies except by an accident or old age. You know, no one, no one ever dies of disease, of, you know, virus, bacteria, anything like that. So it's kind of a utopia to them. That's how they're looking at it. So anyway, Jen basically says to them, Darius has all these skills that I think you'll find useful. You should keep him as part of the community. But then uh, the elder statesman of the group, not, ve not Venable, but kind of his uh, kind of uh, advisor, if you will, asks Jen, well, what can you offer then? And Jen just basically says herself, you know, all I can offer is myself. And she literally says, are there any good men in the village that need a wife? And, you know, Venable kind of his facial expression changes instantly. He walks over to both of them and basically kind of starts questioning them. Are you really willing to stay with us as part of this community? Um, one thing that I forgot to mention too, is earlier in the film, sorry about this folks. Um, earlier in the film, um, Darius and Jen are having a conversation when they're in their hotel room and Darius actually kind of foreshadows, uh, some of the events uh, of the movie because he starts talking about how he wishes he could live a simpler life. He wishes that he could be free of racism, of prejudice, that he could live in a community where everybody contributes, everybody matters and everybody is cared for. So, you know, keep that in mind as the movie goes along. So like I said, uh, at this point, Darius and Jen both agree to the terms and they decide to stay in the community uh, in the next scene, Jen and Darius are seen burning all of their possessions, everything that they brought with them as it's not part of the foundation's world. And once they've burned everything, like all their clothing and shoes and everything that they brought with them, uh, they then almost have like a rite of passage with the community where a couple of the hunters walked up to Darius with a like a like a horn, um, you know, like the Vikings would use a horn to hold wine and liquor and stuff like that. They end up handing the horn to Darius, having him take a sip. Darius takes a sip. Obviously, he reacts uh, badly because it's very strong alcohol, whatever it is that they're making there in the village. Uh, and then instantly the two hunters are all, you know, they're hugging them. They're, they're patting them on the back. Basically they're not speaking English. Cause like I said, only a few people in this village speak English. It seems like it's Ruthie, Edith, Venable, Venable's advisor. Um, and then one, one guy that actually gets to go into town every now and again, who, um, Adam actually had an interaction with, but, uh, we'll get to that in a little bit because we, we get the reveal of who that guy was. Actually, it's right now during the court case. <laughs> so uh, basically during the court case, this guy becomes a witness and he talks about how Adam threw a bottle at him. Earlier, you remember when I said the group first got to the town in Virginia, they went to a bar. And um, when they came out of the bar, they saw a shadowy figure standing near their car. And as Adam starts to approach him, the guy's not budging. He's not moving. He's just standing there. Adam is yelling at him. And at one point, Adam does indeed throw a glass bottle at him, which smashes at the guy's feet. Adam turns his back for half a second and then the guy's gone. 
disappeared like the mist. So, um, so like I said, uh, this particular character is telling the story um, at the trial, which is part of the reason cause, um, that uh, Adam is indeed condemned for his crimes. So, where are we? Uh, so, like I said, they Jen and Darius are now welcomed into the community, and at this point, Edith then takes Jen to Venable's cabin. And as it turns out, uh, the leader of the foundation himself wants Jen as a wife. He basically tells her the story of how he was married until very recently, but that his wife died from a fall. And this is where he explains that no one in this community dies from anything other than accidents or old age. And um, they basically proceed to make love. Thankfully, we don't have to watch it. But it is implied that Jen does uh, agree and lay down with Venable in bed. So we then go back to Jen's dad. Jen's dad is now uh, in the town for the first time. He's or, or, you know, since the first uh, from the opening scene where I was talking about he was there. But that was that was a, uh, a modern scene. This is still don't forget the timeline here is all fucked up. So. You know, we're still kind of technically in the past at this point, and we're seeing Jen's dad arrive in the town for the first time. Again, he's talking to the hotel manager. This time, though, the the hotel manager is uh, a lot more willing to give him information. She ends up meeting him at a bar later in the evening, and she starts telling the story of the foundation, and she tells the more detailed version where, you know, again, a dozen or so families right before the start of the Civil War, decided to go live up in the mountains and wait for the war to end in the hopes that America would be in shambles and that they could then come out and create a new nation. Um, uh, The hotel manager tells Jen's dad about how we don't bother them, they don't bother us, we know that they're up there, but ultimately they're not aggressive unless you trespass on their woods, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she explains, that's why I told your daughter to stay on the main trail and to not veer off it. So, again, more city slickers not listening to the advice of locals. But, you know, horror trope number 37. What are you going to do? So, um, at this point, after the hotel manager tells Jen's father uh, all this information about the foundation, he is then attacked outside the bar by the harbinger and his friends. Uh, You know, at this point, we're not 100 percent sure if the Harbinger is a part of the foundation, if they're like buffers for the foundation. Like maybe that's why the foundation's never been found out, because this town kind of covers for them. And they do. I mean, we see in every scene with Jen's father, the entire town just kind of acting. You know, they're like, yeah, people disappear up there all the time, but no one wants to say why, even though they all know. So they're they're basically keeping the foundation secret for them. So. Um, so like I said, uh, Jen's dad is assaulted outside of the bar by the harbinger and some of his buddies and basically just left in the street. The next day, uh, he leaves the hotel and he's carrying hiking gear. The hotel manager sees him walking out with the hiking gear and instantly stops him and says, what are you doing? If you go up there, you're dead. You you, you can't, you're not going to find your daughter. And if you think what the hillbillies did to you last night was bad, wait until you see what the foundation does to you. Of course, though, this is a loving dad who isn't going to be deterred from his mission. So, 
you know, he ends up going anyway. The hotel manager ends up stopping him just before he leaves. And she offers him assistance uh, by offering him a guide, basically someone who knows those woods, who can take him where he needs to go. Um, later that day, he ends up meeting the guide, ends up paying the guy $5,000 to take him through the woods. Um, the guide explains that he had an altercation with the foundation years ago where uh, they shot an arrow towards his head, but it missed and it ended up just like skimming off the top of his head and leaving him with 19 stitches. So he's always kind of held a grudge against them because, you know, he technically he wasn't trespassing. He was just walking around the woods. He didn't realize what woods he was in and they almost killed him. So, of course, he holds a grudge. Uh, the guy does have a teenage son who does end up going with them uh, into the woods. So now it's dad, uh, Jen's dad, uh, and then the guide, and then the guide's son. So in their travels, um, what ends up happening is dad obviously is an older gentleman, older than the guide and his son. So, you know, he ends up lagging behind a little bit. The guide ends up turning around to go get him, you know, because he's slowing them down basically to admonish them and say, hey, come on, you got to keep up with the rest of us. And then suddenly in the background, we see the guide's son fall into a, another pit trap. Um, this time, though, he doesn't quite fall all the way down like Mila did earlier. He's able to kind of catch the lip of the of the pit and hold himself up with his arms while his father then comes over and tries to get him out of the trap. Unfortunately, as dad is pulling his son out of the trap, he springs a tripwire that he doesn't see behind him, and down comes this large, heavy piece of, it almost looks like a piece of petrified wood that's got spikes driven through it, and it just crushes the dad and the son simultaneously. Because uh, like I said, the son was basically from the chest up, he was out of the pit, and then the dad, like I said, was laying on the ground trying to pull him out. Sloppy, and, sloppy work. Exactly. And then this is, <laughs> This is uh, this is where I start to really like dad because dad sees the guy die instantly and he says something like, God damn it or whatever. Like, you know, just he's pissed off about it. But without even thinking, he walks right up to the guy's dead body and loots him for his gun and ammo, which, again, you don't see that enough in horror movies where people are, you know, because, you know, obviously these these aren't friends or acquaintances. They just met. So I guess he has less of a problem, you know, looting his body for anything that potentially uh, is useful. I call that the video game mentality because every single video game I play, you kill somebody, you loot their body and you get some ammo, some money, blah, blah, blah. So it was just nice to see somebody actually do it in a horror film with so little thought too. like it's not like he froze and freaked out. It's like the thing fell. He reacted and then instantly walks up to the guide, grabs his gun, grabs his go bag and starts pulling stuff out of it that he needs, that he thinks he might need for the trip, uh, for the rest of the hike, flashlights, things like that. Um, unfortunately, uh, dad ends up, he's by himself because obviously the guide and his son are both dead. Dad is alone in the woods. It looks like some time has passed because it's now nighttime, whereas the guide and his son died when the sun was still out. So a few hours have passed, and Dad, by just sheer dumb luck, ends up finding the foundation. He finds the the village because um, it has a very distinct uh, wooden like fencing around it. So he sees it, but then as soon as he sees it, he's he's uh, basically captured and brought 
or uh, excuse me, he goes into the village by himself, and as he's as he steps in, people start coming out of the woodwork. You know, the the skull headed people. Um, you know, the foundation members start coming out of the woodwork, and they end up capturing not capturing but surrounding Dad. Um, at one point, Darius actually. Darius is actually the one who captures the dad who actually physically grabs him and then as soon as he sees who it is Darius takes his mask off and the dad instantly even though more than a month has gone by and Darius now has a full beard and his his afro is kind of you know grown out blah 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 uh, dad still recognizes him instantly you know is wondering what's going on slowly the rest of the community starts coming out and they start surrounding the dad and then suddenly we see a single arrow uh just go right into the dad's arm he falls to the ground uh the dad does i will admit that the dad does something pretty stupid in this scene uh the gun that he took from the guide is a six shooter it's a magnum there's only six bullets in it dad ends up wasting three of them just shooting them up straight in the air to try to scare yeah. these people it's like how do you not just look at these people and know they're not scared of your silly little gun and he like so like i said he wastes half his ammo he shoots exactly three times straight up in the air this will come back to bite him later so keep that in mind um at and then like i said uh an arrow comes whizzing through the air right into dad's arm jen then comes out of the crowd holding the bow and arrows and it, it's very obvious that it's Jen who shot her dad. Jen is not happy to see him. At least she's not acting like she is. So it almost seems like she has been completely, I, I hate to say brainwashed, but indoctrinated into the, you know, the village and their belief system and everything else. So dad is found guilty of trespassing right then and there without any trial, without anything. Uh, because Venable basically realizes that this is Jen's father, who, of course, Jen is now his wife. And he even makes the comment, this girl is not your daughter. This is my wife. And then, you know, they put a hood on Jen's dad over his head and he's dragged away. Um, That night, uh, dad is in the same pit that Jen was in earlier in the film. He's being held prisoner until his punishment is handed out the next morning. But Jen decides to break him out. This is when Jen starts to act like herself again. So obviously she was kind of pretending in the first uh, scene where dad showed up. So she's now letting dad know, no, uh, we're going to get out of here. We need to get out of here. We need to do it right now because they're going to kill you in the morning. Uh, Jen and her father end up running into Darius while they're escaping. And Darius, believe it or not, actually lets them go, but decides to stay. Now, you're, you guys remember the conversation from earlier where Darius was saying he wished he could be a part of a community where he actually mattered, where, he, where people actually recognized him and you know, knew his value, recognized his value. He now has that, and he tells Jen, I'm not leaving. I love it here. These people actually see me. They need me, and I need them. And so Jen doesn't really argue. She's just like, okay. She gives Darius one last kiss because don't forget they were a couple at the beginning of the movie, even though she's now for the last month been sleeping with uh, Venable right in front of Darius. But, you know, apparently he's come to terms with it. So Jen realizes that the she, she takes her dad to the gate and the gate suddenly is locked in a way that it's never been locked before. 
So, you know, Jen starts to have like a little mild freak out trying to figure out if there's another way out. And then she sees Ruthie. Little Ruthie is kind of watching them as they're trying to escape. Jen walks up to Ruthie and asks her, is there, I know that you like to go down to the bottom of the hill or, you know, you, you like to go to the base of the mountain periodically. Do you know another way out of here that isn't the front gate? Ruthie nods her head. Yes, she does know another way to get out. She then takes Jen and her father to the entrance of the darkness. And if you guys remember, the darkness was that cave system in total pitch darkness where, you know, all of their uh, people that weren't executed were sent to. So literally as Jen and her father are walking through the darkness, she has a torch, which is providing the only light source. And we just see dozens of people in there just walking around aimlessly. It's very similar to a zombie scene, actually. Uh, Jen and her father aren't attacked. Uh, they're just kind of walking through in between all these people. And unfortunately, they do end up finding Luis, uh, their friend from earlier. He's basically um, practically naked, uh, sitting on the ground, eating something. It looks like it might be a piece of flesh, but then again, it could be like standard food, too. Uh, so, you know, I'm not sure if they're kind of implying that the people in the darkness aren't actually fed and they have to fend for themselves. But uh, we get a little bit of an answer to that here in a little bit. Um, so, like I said, uh, Jen finds Luis and in an act of mercy and kindness, uh, she ends up uh, shooting Luis uh, in the head, killing him instantly and basically freeing him from, you know, this awful existence that he would have known for the rest of his life. Uh, they end up finding the way out of the uh, the labyrinth, if you will. And um, uh, eventually they are caught up to by Edith. Edith ends up catching up to them. She attacks Jen. Jen and Edith kind of roll around a little bit on the ground. Jen is holding a or Edith is holding a knife that Jen has taken away from her. Then they both fall off a short cliff, a short one, just like maybe 10 feet. And in the process of landing, Jen buries Edith's knife into her chest. So Edith has been dispatched. Um, the very next scene, we get the English-speaking witness from the trial that I alluded to earlier, the guy who had the bottle thrown at him. And he starts talking. He actually says a very uh, Miggs-type line, Miggs from uh, Silence of the Lambs, where he actually says, I can smell your juices which is such a creepy fucking line. But yeah, he literally proclaims, I can smell your juices, and then basically chases her down. Uh, Jen is then able to pull out her knife and repeatedly stabs this guy. I mean, it had to be a couple of dozen times. She starts stabbing him in the chest first, but by the time she's done, she's stabbing him in the face. And once again, when dad finally catches back up with her and she pulls the knife out, it's just a crevice. It's just a hole where a face used to be. So, again, I see Don's point about seeing more aftermath than the actual kills. But since the aftermath do look great, it's it's some nice practical effects, I'm going to go ahead and accept it. So, Jen and Dad escape one more time. Uh, the Foundation ends up catching up with them. And believe it or not, out of nowhere, the Harbinger and his redneck buddies show up, packing heat. They all got rifles in their hands. And um, Jen, obviously, at first, when she sees the Harbinger, um, you know, 
pulls up the bow and arrow and aims it at him. And, you know, cause she's not sure if they're a part of the foundation, you know, what's going on, but the harbinger makes it very obvious that they're there to help, that they're there to try to get Jen and her father off the mountain because he talks about how he doesn't have any kids. Uh, he basically answers the question that the dad asked him earlier in the movie when he says, do you have any kids? What would you do? The Harbinger then explains to them, well, I don't have any kids, but I did have a nephew who disappeared in these mountains and we never found him. And he talks about how he has no love for the foundation and that he'd like to shoot every single one of them if he could. But he understands they're outnumbered and just wants to get Jen and her dad out of the woods. Suddenly, the foundation once again appears. Uh, they attack, but... Uh, fortunately, with uh, the locals, well, the redneck locals having weapons, they're kind of able to drive uh, most of the foundation away, uh, you know, just shooting out, shooting into the woods, um, you know, if they hear a noise or whatever. And like I said, they're finally able to get back to the road where there's a truck, a pickup truck waiting for them. And just as they're all loading up into the pickup, we turn around and there's Venable standing at the top of the hill holding a very large, scary-looking axe. And basically, excuse me, sorry, folks, I got the hiccups. <clears throat> um, basically, uh, Venable is standing at the top of the hill screaming for Jennifer. The Harbinger goes into the truck, and he pulls out a Molotov cocktail, lights it, and throws it towards Venable. It doesn't quite hit him, but it lands in front of him, creating a wall of fire that keeps him from advancing down the hill. So basically as the Harbinger and his buddies and Jen and her father are driving away in the pickup, we get this really cool shot of Venable just standing at the top of the hill with fire in front of him. And he's looking all badass, holding the ax, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like Jen and dad are finally away. Um, and we get we basically get a scene that looks like it takes place weeks or months later because Jen doesn't have any you know bruises or anything. Dad doesn't have any bruises on his face. They both look pretty much normal. So you know you can venture a guess that weeks or months at this point have gone by. Uh, Jen was visiting him on the work site. Like I said, uh, Jen's dad is some kind of construction coordinator or whatever. Uh, she drops off some blueprints for him, gives him a hug, actually makes a silly little gag about how it's movie night and that her and that the boys, her brothers or half brothers picked an inbred, some inbred cannibal movie. Uh, dad says again, and they both have a little chuckle about it. I thought that was kind of cute. It's, it's silly over the top, but I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of cute that these two people who actually survived, you know, and in, inbred, maybe not so much cannibal. Um, oh, and by the way, I meant to say that um, in the scene where Jen and her father are escaping the, the darkness, we actually do see some of the blind people eating flesh of another person. After Jen kills, uh, during the escape, Jen ends up killing the brother of the original murder victim, the guy that Adam smashed. Uh, she ends up just shooting him instantly, and then suddenly we see a couple of the people that are in the darkness come out and slowly actually start chewing on his flesh, actually start eating him. So it seems like um, part of their punishment is that they're not fed you know, while they're in the darkness, so they have to fend for themselves. So I'm actually surprised we didn't see more dead bodies down there when Jen and her dad were walking through there, but so be it. So, like I said, 
at this point. It's weeks or months later, and we we get a scene where Jen uh, drives back to her house, her family's house, you know, her father and stepmother's house. And when she walks in, she hears a very familiar voice speaking to her mother. She walks into the living room, and there is her husband, Venable, sitting at the dining room table, completely brushed and cleaned. He's wearing clean, normal clothes. He looks like a normal human. And he introduces himself as John in this scene. Uh, he, He basically says that he's thinking about buying a house in the neighborhood and that he was going around meeting some of the neighbors. Jen is just like in absolute shock, just standing there. She's not saying anything. She's just staring at Venable. Um, She ends up excusing herself, going up to her room and grabbing a couple of hunting knives that she had hidden up there. She comes back down and instantly uh, attacks uh, Venable. Basically, you know, Venable says, I guess I was wrong about you. You actually are a strong woman. You know, she says, I had to be strong to get away from you. And then out of nowhere, she leaps over the dining room table and attacks Venable. Unfortunately, he's able to get one of the knives that she's holding away from her. He takes it. He throws Jen down to the ground. And literally, it literally looks like it took like three to five seconds. First, he picks up a knife, stabs Jen's mother in the chest. In the same motion of pulling the knife out of mom's chest, he slices the the throat of one of the brothers. Literally, like I said, in the same motion. And then he flips the knife in midair, grabs it, and buries it into the chest of the second brother. Uh, Jen has two brothers, uh, half-brothers uh, here. And finally, as soon as Venable kills the second brother, she is then finally able to get another one of her knives and stabs him in the back of the head, killing him instantly. He, you know, he basically, you know, just falls forward onto the kitchen table. But then the camera pans out and it just shows Jen staring at her dead family. Everybody's dead. Ruthie is literally the only other person left alive. Um, I'm sorry, I may have forgotten to mention that uh, Ruthie and Venable are here in this scene. Uh, He probably brought Ruthie figuring that if he's with a child, maybe she wouldn't attack right away or whatever. So as Jen is staring, is just sitting there staring at what just happened, suddenly she comes to um, and she's still standing Uh, in front of the dining room table with everybody still alive. Jen didn't actually attack them. This was a thought in her head, and I fucking love this because it's almost like Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if anybody saw Sherlock Holmes, the uh, Robert Downey Jr. one specifically, where where whenever he's in a fight, he plots out all his steps first. So this was basically Jen... Uh, thinking in her head if she could successfully attack this guy and kill him in her own house, realizing that, you know, he's a big, strong guy and he's going to take out all, if not some, of her family, she actually decides to go with him. She actually says, okay, I will go with you. I will go back to the foundation, uh, but you have to promise me that you will never come back here. You will never visit my family. You will never, ever come anywhere near them. If you promise me that, I will go back with you. And he and Venable agrees. They end up walking out of the house. 
where we then see that uh, Venable actually got there in an RV that had like three more Foundation members standing guard outside. So even if, you know, even if Jen's daydream was reality, those surviving members probably would have just ransacked the house and killed Jen anyway. So good choice on her part. And then basically uh, we see a shot of the RV just driving away and the credits start rolling. The closing credits start rolling. Now I was actually okay with that ending. I was, you know, it was a very bleak ending obviously. And I just thought that once again, just like the first time at the foundation, Jen made a decision to save her friends and family and that she was going to stick with it. So like I said, the closing credits start, the credits are rolling. We have the shot of the RV pulling away, just driving down the street. Suddenly you see the RV start to swerve and it starts swerving back and forth on the road. Mind you, credits are still rolling. Credits are rolling this entire time. Um, the RV runs off the road, hits a parked car, and then we just start hearing like a commotion. We hear like, you know, just some struggling suddenly the side door of the RV opens and there's Jen stabbing one of the foundation members to death. Just once again, going completely ballistic on him. One of the things I really love about Jen is that she overstabs people. And I love that because, you know, I've always talked about how much I hate weapon droppers and I hate people, characters who get the upper hand on an antagonist, but then don't finish the job. Na na na. Jen finishes the goddamn job every single time. So she, like I said, she is stabbing this one in guy. In brutal, brutal fashion, too. Oh, brutal as hell. Like I said, stabbing him in the chest, stabbing him in the face. Like, nothing is sacred. She's just stabbing the hell out of these people. And mind you, this is a long shot. This is another one of those shots that I'm sure Don wasn't happy with because we're not actually seeing the stabs. We're seeing them from far away, from down the street. And again, closing credits are still rolling. Suddenly, we see Venable... Uh, come out of the driver's side of the RV and it looks like he's running away. It actually looks like he's trying to run away. He's holding his throat. So obviously Jen must have slit his throat in the RV, which is, you know, why it ran off the road. And he's trying to run away and like goddamn Rambo, Jen throws her hunting knife and hits Venable in the back and he falls down. Jen then does that awesome slow approach to Venable mounts him and pulls the knife out and then once again continues with her stabbing tirade. She had to have stabbed him like a dozen or two times in, in this scene. Just epic. Um, finally, all the men in the RV are dead and we see Ruthie come out. Ruthie comes out and she starts walking towards Jen. Not 100% sure what's about to happen because obviously Ruthie is one of the foundation, but Ruthie has also kind of developed a liking for Jen. You know, they, they kind of got close while Jen was at the community. And uh, Ruthie basically walks up to Jen, puts her hand on Jen's shoulder. Jen stops stabbing Venable. She gets up, she grabs Ruthie's hand, and then they just walk towards the camera until finally they're completely out of the shot. So literally, the uh, the climax of this movie occurs during the closing credits. So yeah, if you're one of those people who tends to stop the movie as soon as the credits start, don't for this one. Obviously, if you're listening to my voice, you've probably already seen the movie. But if you haven't, I strongly suggest you watch the credits because that gives us the payoff that we've been looking for. Like I said, Jen and Ruthie walk off camera frame and then fade to black. 
And that is Wrong Turn 2021. All right, so I got to ask about the elephant in the room. Do you think Darius ratted on Jen? Because how else would Venable know where she lives? Mm, I I think so. That's got to be definitely how we found out, because how, how else would he have been able to find his way to civilization without knowing exactly where she was from from him? I mean, he's the exactly. only one that knew. Yeah. I guess my, my, my follow-up question to that is, is Darius still alive? Because I'm on the fence on this one, because don't forget, Darius and Jen are outlanders. They were brought into the community. They said that they would be, uh, you know, uh, beneficial parts of the community. Jen obviously, you know, escaped. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, the, the foundation knew that Darius let them get away, but I'm just wondering, would their animosity towards Jen carry over to Darius? So even even though Darius has been a good part of the community, do we think he's still alive? I'm going to say no. That's just my opinion, mind you. Because there, there's no, you know, there's no indication in the movie as to what happens to Darius. You know, the, the, happy, the happy thought is that he's just a member of the Foundation, living the life that he wanted to live, blah, blah, blah. I just don't see how those people would allow him to live after Jen escapes. You know what I mean? I, I almost feel like they tortured him to get Jen's address, to get her actual home address, and then probably just offed him just to be done with it. I don't know. Like I said, it's uh, I base well, that unless, on absolutely he, nothing. <laughs> unless he turned full on cult because maybe he got maybe he um, felt a little hostility yeah. to because she's the one that came up with the plan for them to stay in order to survive, and then you know he's he finally accepted it and kind of became one of them. And then, Oh, now I'm not going to escape. And maybe he's like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's what I'm hoping. Cause obviously, you know, with that conversation earlier in the film where Darius is looking for his utopia, you know, where he can live and be a valuable member of a community. And, you know, he, he found that for a little while, but I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I'm only thinking about how the foundation thinks about outsiders. Cause at this point, Darius and Jen have only been there a month. They've been missing for six weeks total. They've been at the mm -hmm. foundation for a month because Jen actually mentions that she's been with Venable for a month. So in a month, uh, Darius went completely native, which again, because of the type of life that he was looking for, it may have been exactly what he wanted. So you know, I guess for Darius, it's kind of a happy ending, assuming he survived. But uh, I, I just wish they wouldn't have left that kind of plot point dangling. I would have just give me a quick little thing of either Darius getting killed or maybe even a shot of his dead body. Like maybe like maybe Venable shows up at Jen's house and shows her a picture, you know, of Darius, you know, strung up or whatever. I don't know. Um, when you leave little things, little plot points like that, you know, unresolved, it, it's almost the only thing I'm thinking about when I walk away from the movie. So, but ultimately for me, uh, I absolutely enjoyed this movie. I, I can't say enough good things about it. Like I said, as I'm watching it, I'm not having any major, major decision, uh, any problems with any of the decisions that are being made. Dad wasting half his bullets with warning shots, eh, maybe a little dumb, but um, you still got to cut him some slack because it's not like it's something he's ever dealt with. You know, he, it's not like he's ever dealt with a, you know, community of 
I don't want to say crazies, but um, just, you know, different people. It's kind of funny, too, because during the movie, during the trial, Jen calls them barbaric. And um, the leader kind of takes offense to that. He's like, why are we barbaric? We didn't, we, we didn't attack you. We've never, we don't know you. We've never said anything negative about you. You just out of nowhere decided to kill one of our guys. And um, I don't know. I, I found that kind of, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost noble, if you will. You know, like at times, like, at times throughout the second act, I was literally questioning who the antagonist of the film was. Because when they first got to the foundation and we get the explanation of everything that they're doing up there and who they are, it seems like they're keeping to themselves. You know, they don't outwardly go out and kill people. They don't hunt people. They only hunt their food. Um, you know, they have they have an uneasy relationship with the townsfolk, with the, the people at the bottom of the mountain, but... It seems to be working because there's not, I mean, even, even the sheriff himself seems to be somewhat aware of what's going on up there and, you know, just plays it off when the dad is questioning him about it. So I don't know. I, I liked that little bit of um, mystery as far as like, are these really the, the villains here? But obviously as the movie goes along, you know, we see more and more of the barbaric treatment. And then of course, once we actually see the darkness and what's in there and how they treat those people. They're solidly the antagonist at this point. But ultimately, Adam is a stupid douchebag <laughs> who killed a man for no reason. So, yeah. What are you going to do? Yep. What are you going to do? Enjoy the movie more than you guys, apparently. I mean, they also kind of left it up for a sequel, right? Because Oh, absolutely. I, I, I just don't think it would work. Like, why do I want it? It's still going to be the foundation. It's still going to be probably the same location. But without the charismatic leader, you know, I, like I said, I think Bill Page as Venable did a really good job. You know, he's charismatic. You know, he comes off as very menacing, but at times fair. At times, mind you, not all the time, but... Yeah, I, I, for whatever it's worth, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. Thank you, Heather, for voting for Wrong Turn. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because yeah, we had a yeah. couple choices. Exactly. And as it turns out, the other movie that we had a choice, I'm going to be doing on another one of my shows. So I'll still, I'll still get to talk about it. Nice. And I'll probably end up watching it sometime. Yeah, it's under 90 minutes. Shit. Quick watch. I haven't been hearing the the greatest things about it, but, you know, it's Nick Cage. I'll watch it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, that's Wrong Turn 2021. Um, Venom, where else can we hear you when what do you got out now? All right. First and foremost, Mike and I are very happy to announce the return of Theme Warriors. We finally recorded our first episode since August 2019. Almost, uh, what, like a year and a half hiatus, unfortunately, not planned by any stretch, but uh, we finally got that episode out. What we did was the theme for the episode was uh, movies that got sequels long after the previous movie in the franchise. So, for example, 
one of the movies that we do are uh, my picks where uh, I pick Psycho 2. Uh, Psycho, of course, came out in 1960. Psycho 2 came out in 1983. So we've got a 23-year gap. So that's kind of the theme of the episode. Um, Each host picks a movie and we discuss it. Um, Not quite like a feature-length review by any stretch, but just more, you know, what we thought about it and how it worked with the theme of the episode. So uh, that episode is actually currently out. So check that out on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. That is, of course, um, Mike, myself, Doug Tilly, and Iris Dora. Um, so, yeah, check that show out. Lots of fun. Great to finally have, you know, one of my non-horror podcasts back. So that's cool. Um, on In the Mic of Madness, um, as I just mentioned, we're going to be looking at Willie's Wonderland, and we're going to pair that up with Maximum Overdrive. Oh, okay. Mike, you remember how I feel about Maximum Overdrive, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I made so many enemies that episode of Rad Radio because of how much I hate that movie. And, folks, it's not dislike. It's hate. I fucking hate Maximum Overdrive. And if you want to know why, tune in to the next episode of In the Mic of Madness. <laughs> uh, that'll be uh, out sometime next week on the Prescribed Films Podcast Network. Um, on the main show, No More Room in Hell, we put out an episode last week where we looked at a couple of Finnish horror movies. Uh, we looked at 1952's The White Reindeer and 2008's Sauna. So check that out. That's, of course, Mike, myself, and Mr. Derek B. from the Cinema Attack podcast. Um, on It's Not Horror Okay, um, my non-horror uh, movie commentary show, on the most recent episode, we looked at probably the best movie we've ever done on that show, and that is the absolute classic starring Al Pacino, Dog Day Afternoon. It was so hard to do a commentary for this because I was just watching the movie. <laughs> like I, at times I actually wanted people to shut up so I could watch the movie. That's the problem with doing a commentary on such a high quality film. So yeah. Um, once again, that's available on the dark discussions podcast network. That episode is currently available. So check that out. And uh, unfortunately underwater Kaiju from outer space still on a little bit of a hiatus until we find, you know, a date that works for all four of us. Unfortunately, we got, you know, four people in four very different parts of the country that, you know, we need to get together. Also, with one of the hosts, you know, kind of moving in the last year, it's kind of, you know, put a little bit more of a hindrance on that. But I fully expect uh, Underwater Kaiju to be back sometime in March, hopefully no later than April. Uh, and we'll be looking at, uh, what, what was it, um, Gamera versus, which one, Don? Uh, Barugan. Barugan. Gamera versus Barugan. So, yeah, uh, that'll be on the next episode of Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space whenever we decide to actually do it. Um, and then as far as I'm concerned, uh, Mike and I also did a guest spot on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror podcast a couple of weeks ago. We looked at Terror Vision and the video of Dead. And we also did a bonus review of 1999's The Item. So check that episode out. That one is currently available as well. And then the last thing from me is um, next weekend, uh, the first weekend of April, I will be joining the Cuts of the Chase podcast to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, 
which is a very under uh, underappreciated and under discussed Hitchcock film. So uh, check that out. I obviously I will let everyone know when that episode is available right here. Um, and that's all I have on my plate, Mike. Do you have anything to add, Don? Uh, the only thing for me is um, I got to do a, uh, a new episode of Graveyard Shift where we did a uh, complete franchise retrospective on the Blind Dead films, the uh, Spanish Night Templar zombie films, yeah. which uh, kind of which um, actually um, I just found out um, was a little bit done in haste because I just got a screener opportunity for a film called curse of the blind dead which is supposedly a new entry in the series uh just oh, this, wow. just today <laughs> yeah so uh we kind of uh overshot ourselves just a, a couple days so i have to bring that up with them because i just got the notification in my email actually while we were recording that i have the uh opportunity to screen the film so <laughs> oops oh, well. yeah yeah, so that's, uh, you know, coming out in March, um, Curse of the Blind Dead will uh, be coming out, and I'll have a review for that. But um, look for a franchise retrospective on the first four films in the series coming soon on Graveyard Shit. But um, other than that, yeah, just uh, here on Fresh Cuts. All right. Um, as far as I go, Venom pretty much covered what I would have said as well. Uh, nothing really much in addition to that at this time, but, uh, oh yeah, yeah, we did, did you mention our new Theme Warriors episode? Yep. Sorry. First thing I yeah. did. Yep, that's why I forgot, because it was the first of many. <laughs> um, Put the joint yeah. down, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that is out to listen to our big comeback episode on Dark Discussions, but, uh, yeah, other than that's all I got. Uh, Venom, what do you think of her next week? Any ideas? Honestly, no. I'm, I'm I'm looking at the list of stuff um, that's been put out, and none of it's really screaming at me. Um, a lot of slashers. Uh, I don't know. Nothing. Nothing's really on the radar as a must-watch right now. So, I guess we can just yeah, watch there's a, things. There's a lot of volume out there now. Hopefully, maybe yeah. Shutter will have something releasing this week. Well, there right, are we a couple things Shook. on there. Yeah, we never did do Shook. Uh, Shook's not really much of a horror film, actually. It's oh, more of a thriller, thriller than anything. Yeah, it's it's predominantly thriller than anything. Yeah, I'll watch it. I'll see. But yeah, uh, as of right now, no, I have no ideas. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> that just means we'll be coming up and figuring out sometime between now and next Tuesday. So. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Again, we will catch you in a week's time. Let's say goodnight to listeners. Later. Adios, and stay out of the woods. Peace. <laughs>